I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. And I'm Matt Bernico. And this week on the show, we're talking about the Philippines. Uh, we have two great guests, Ariel, a student at the Toronto School of Theology, who is researching Christians for National Liberation, a really neat movement that we have talked about every once in a while on the show, but finally have somebody who knows what they're talking about <laughs> to uh, piece some of the, the cool things about them together for us. And also Janelle Ablola, the pastor of uh, a pastor at Pine United Methodist Church. They have done a lot of really great organizing work, uh, solidarity work with people in the Philippines and uh, people in the U.S. And it's really nice to be able to hear from both of them about the history of Christianity and resistance in the Philippines and also the links between that kind of resistance and uh, resistance abroad. Um, so we'll hear a little bit about that history. We'll also hear about what we can do uh, outside of the Philippines and Canada and the U.S. to show solidarity in a very challenging situation. It's a great episode. You're going to love it. Um, it's really important, I think, uh, in a lot of different ways to have these voices on the show and to kind of explore some of these topics more deeply. So uh, really excited for people to listen to it. But before we get to the show, let me steal you away for a minute. Um, over here <laughs> on this side of the podcast room. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Right. <laughs> we'll come back to Dean in just a minute, but let me tell you, um, if you like the Magnificast, you can support us financially by supporting us on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Um, it would be a very cool thing if you did that, but if you can't, that's fine too. We get it. If you do support us on Patreon at the $2 or more level, you get all kinds of great things like access to early episodes, you know, like when we have them, <laughs> just sometimes. I'm doing a bad sales pitch again. Um, <laughs> you can also get an invite to our exclusive Discord channel uh, to uh, be a part of the, the big Magnificast community and talk to other Magnificast people and uh, us and share links and make jokes and have a good time online. And then also you get access to the uh, behind the paywall Patreon only uh, podcast that Dean and I do every week called The Lock-In. Um, the Lock-In is a current events podcast uh, where we also just make a lot of dumb jokes so i mean what's not to like you get so much in return for supporting us um the the money that you might give us does help us pay the bills and we appreciate it okay i'll stop trying to sell you on this and uh we can get back to the episode now um the episode with um with ariel and janelle is very cool very excited for everyone to listen to it i do need to flag this right here though that the audio is a little bit rough in places and uh listen it's not that bad you can squint your ears a little bit and it's fine <laughs> not, not that big of a deal, but just want to tell you that uh, it's definitely worth sticking with. Um, I think the uh, the content is really important. So hopefully the uh, some of the spotty audio doesn't uh, deter you too much. But uh, with all that being said, let's go to the podcast. Thanks for coming on the show, Ariel and Janelle. Uh, whenever we have guests on the show, we ask them to do a little introducing uh, of themselves to our audience. So could you start out by telling us a little bit about who you are and what you're interested in? Oh, thanks for having us. Um, my name is Ariel. Uh, I am an ordained minister of the Iglesia Evangelica Metodista in Las Islas Filipinas, or the Evangelical Methodist Church in the Philippines. Currently, I am on my second year doctoral uh, study of theology at Toronto School of Theology. That's what I do mainly. Uh, but on the side, I am part of the International Coalition for Human Rights in the Philippines. We are forming a chapter here in Toronto. ICHIRP is a global network of 
uh, organic, uh, organizations concerned about the human rights situation in the Philippines and committed to campaign for just and lasting peace in the country. I am uh, Janelle Ablola, and I am a pastor in the United Methodist Church, currently pastoring in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area and uh, working with the California Nevada Philippines Solidarity Task Force of the United Methodist Church. Um, I am, um, I see myself as an activist rooted in faith and um, I do identify um, with a lot of different uh, intersections. Um, I'm Filipino American. I was uh, raised in the US diaspora. My parents immigrated from the Philippines in the early 70s. And um, that's that's part of um, yeah that's that's part of kind of what brought me to to this work of solidarity as well. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. We uh, really appreciate your voices and your expertise on the show. I think the Philippines is a it's a really fascinating country. Uh, it's one that the United States uh, I think people I think people in the United States know very little about, especially about its current political situation and um, its the, the struggle going on there now. Um, before we kind of get into the into the depth of, of the conversation, would you mind just telling us a little bit about like what's happening in the Philippines now? Um, what's like the main political struggle? What does it look like? Um, what are the moving parts of it? I mean, just broadly, I guess it's a lot. Of, it's a big question, but uh, yeah, as broad as you uh, as you want to be. I, I, I actually appreciate that question. It's an important question since that provides a, a pretext and sort of justification to the ministries of what we're going to talk about the Christians for National Liberation. So uh, I think when we speak of political background, it is imperative to look at the historical material basis that gives birth to a particular political consciousness. And there are two important conditions which probably will answer the political background uh, that we should take account for the political consciousness arising from the Philippine people. First is the condition of continuing colonialism. Um, we have been colonized with the Spaniards for more than 300 years, then by the United States by from 1890 until the so-called independence in 1947. I say uh, so-called because what ended was formal colonialism, but colonialism in essence uh, exists, continue in different forms of like military bases in the Philippines operated after 1947. Now, military cooperations between the Philippines and the U.S. is in the form of these forces agreements. And of course, we take into consideration the mechanisms of globalization that extends the colonial rule of the U.S., well, not just in the, in the Philippines, but also in countries vulnerable to their offers. So that's one condition. The second condition is the condition of poverty that informs and shapes the political background. The majority of the people live in poverty mostly are in rural areas where they farm the land they are not able to own. In urban areas right now, workers are swarming in foreign companies since the Philippines does not have a national industry. So it is highly dependent on, the, on foreign investments and labor experts. As you would notice, um, there are large numbers of Filipino diaspora in Canada, well, all over the world. Um, in the Philippines, labor export is a national program where you send your people in affluent societies such as Canada so that they can send money back home. So the condition of colonialism and continuing colonialism and the condition of poverty forms this political background. We have a government tied and committed to the interests of, of their foreign masters. We have politicians who came from the old rich background who would rather not have changed it in meaning they are not concerned with land reform and forming national industries because they benefit from the present structure of things. And we have a population experience in poverty. Um, maybe an introduction, CNL member operates from a political consciousness aware of these two conditions and aware and participating on a way out of these conditions. Maybe Janal can add some things about the current political situation. Yeah, along with what um, Ariel had mentioned, um, is is also just the the history of um, people in the Philippines rising up for for their liberation and for self determination, and how um, historically that's been met with um, 
you know, ire from the government, ire from those who, um, you know, benefit from the from the interests that uh, Ariel had raised as well. Um, currently, there's, um, or actually in uh, 2020, that there was an anti-terror law that was passed in the Philippines um, that basically um, put it into into law that that um, the the security of the Philippines would be allowed to go after those who um, are seen as quote unquote terrorists, those who are who speak out against the government, those who um, show any dissent um, against the government as well. And this red tagging, you know, it's not a new thing, but to have it put into law with very vague um, and very broad uh, stipulations and means for implementation is very dangerous. Um, I mean, it's some people call it terror tagging, right? Because we say that it's based on terrorism. And that happened in um, after 9-11, uh, the Philippines became the second front on the war on terror. And so uh, people were were using the label of terrorist in order to silence dissent. And now they're also using um, the label of communist to, to silence dissent as well. And folks who have been, I mean, red tagging has escalated, especially since the passing of the ATL or the anti-terror law. Um, and it costs people their lives. Um, it can, um, I mean, just, just this week I, I saw um, that there had been a lawyer that had been killed and a lawyer that was previously working on a case for human rights and for someone who was also um, red tagged and, and killed as well. So the, the we can't really underestimate the severity of the situation um, of the harassment of activists and um, harassment of human rights defenders. Um, on top of that, um, I also wanted to add that there is a Philippine National Police outpost in the Philippine consulate in San Francisco. And we have yet to know why they're there and what they're doing, but it's hard for us to not think about how the red tagging may be also implemented through that outpost. Um, and this isn't something new, right? Um, yeah. The Philippine, there are Filipino activists in the US um, who were killed during anti anti-Marcos times um, or for their anti-Marcos activism. And they were uh, Filipinos who were living in Washington state. So red, red, the red tagging is worldwide for us because of the diaspora. That's such a, uh, I mean, obviously a very troubling situation, but just a really challenging one to get our heads around as well, that uh, that kind of uh, red tagging, as you're putting it, would, um, you know, not just be enclosed into the borders of the Philippines, but has uh, worldwide consequences. Um, you know, we, we definitely want to hear more about the Christians for National Liberation, which I know have uh, something to do with that red tagging story back in the anti-Marcos uh, period as well. Um, maybe before we get into that, could you tell us a little bit more about what red tagging does um, in terms of uh, sort of disciplining or policing all kinds of people, whether they're communist or not communist at all? And uh, does that sort of shape the way that people um, organize in the solidarity movement or organize within the Philippines? When when someone is when someone is red tagged, um, they are more or less susceptible to to harassment and vilification, and that of course prevents someone's participation, and that leaves a, a mark or a trauma to the population. It's it's a way of, as you say, uh, deed. It's a way of disciplining the, the the society and the population. And does that uh, sort of shape um, maybe how people uh, organize or are um, uh, willing to put themselves out there, or um, you know, afraid of of that even uh, internationally at all? Yeah, I think that it sows a lot of fear, and also um, I think that sometimes the public believes it. Um, and, and I think that can be dangerous in regards to just not harassment from and, and being outcast. Um, I mean, not just harassment from the military and the police, but also like outcast from the community or um, not being able to see your family or be with your family because of the possible dangers that, um, you know, that red tagging has. Like people are being followed. People um, are, are having threatening texts sent to them and random phone calls. Um, because because of this red tagging. And so there's a lot of having to 
um, make extra precautions, I think, in people's safety. Um, yeah. So in, in general, it's making people more um, cautious in doing that work and sowing more fear. And the thing is that it's kind of, um, in some cases, like in the case of Jory Porquia, who, who was killed last year, he was simply uh, providing aid in, um, you know, helping feed folks during the pandemic. And he was he was then killed for that. Um, he is also has been involved in activism for a while, but those were the acts that he was engaged in before um, he was killed. It's a it's an incredibly troubling thing. Um, it's it's a it's a disgusting thing to target activists like that. I think that's um, well, I mean, to understate it, it's very bad. Well, maybe we can shift the conversation just slightly here um, or, or kind of put some of the some of the pieces here that we've been talking about already into context. Um, Ariel, we originally wanted to have you on the show to talk about um, one of your uh, academic interests, uh, which is the Christians for National Liberation. Maybe we can kind of get the ball rolling here just with uh, you describing what the organization is and uh, how it started. Maybe some some things about the history there. Sure. So the Christians for National Liberation uh, or the CNL was founded at the worship room of San Paolo University Center in Manila on February 17, 1972. Um, on the anniversary of the martyrdom of priests, fathers, Gomez, Burgos, and Samora. So the initial members of the CNL were 72 people whom they called themselves revolutionary disciples of Christ. They gathered to bear the, the quote-unquote uh, cross of sacrifice and quote-unquote raise the red banner of revolution. The immediate context that gave birth to CNL is the rapidly growing discontent of the Filipino people uh, with their economic and political life. Many were food where were those who live in rural areas where uh, most of the means of living is by farming have to grapple with the situation that though they have plowed the land for many years, they still do not have the means to own it. So large tracts of land, which are called machenda, were owned by unique families. So at that time, young people were lured to go to urban areas to join in this, the industrializing cities but only to be disappointed by the dismal situation for the environment and scarcity of opportunity for, for employment. So at that time, when social unrest erupts, becomes violent, there were numerous rallies staged by the working class, that, but they were confronted by guns and violence by the government. The years preceding the, preceding the, the founding of CNL is the most tumultuous years of that period in Philippine history. So that's the immediate context of of uh, the formation of CNL, while um, looking from a broader view, the historical formation of CNL can be considered a culmination of a long tradition of defiance against colonial rule organized by church people. The, uh, the CNL claimed to trace its roots from the martyrdom of the chief priest, um, and uh, this martyrdom happened during the Spanish colonial rule uh, in the Philippines due to uh, charges of subversion arising from the rebellion of the Tagalog uh, in Cavite in 1872. So there's a long history and tradition of Filipino church people defying colonialism. Like in 1902, the Iglesia Filipina of the Philippine Independent Church was formed as a protest against the Spanish control of the Roman Catholic Church. On a similar move, the Yemenite Church uh, my church was founded mostly against the U.S. colonial rule, particularly the rule of the Methodist Episcopal Church. Notably, the founders of these two churches were also organizers of workers' union, too. So we see at this early in history that a consciousness that is both religious and political is, um, is made possible. Sabelo de los Reyes is a labor leader, while the group uh, Angkatopohanan or in Tagalog, it's called the truth, uh, were anti-Spanish, anti-American colonial rule, and themselves organizers of the working class. So CNL is a culmination of the anti-colonial and nationalistic aspirations of the Filipino church people, but it is also a beginning of a new mode of doing Christianity in relation to work of transformation. The CNL is working on the analysis that the suffering of the Filipino people are brought about uh, by imperialism, feudalism, and bureaucrat capitalism. Uh, this I saw on their website. It's, uh, so the project is, quote-unquote, a new democratic revolution 
that aims to overthrow the anti-imperialist comprador landlord rule. I know from documentary and uh, from stories I hear, because I'm researching on this group as part of my academic work, and I found out that none of you have joined who gave up their priestly garbs and clerical collars in exchange of guards to join the armed struggle waging the countryside. One particular film where I saw some friends whom I was surprised to see in the documentary is um, maybe our listeners would be interested to see Revolution Selfie. You can Google it. I saw friends in the documentary who plays political and education officers in the battalion. And I think one of the passageways for the church people to join the revolution is to uh, to the CNL. It's a really fascinating, uh, you know, uh, initiation into the CNL and what it is and, and kind of what it's all about. That's really helpful. The very beginning of our conversation, you mentioned, you know, the relationship between the, uh, the material conditions sort of dictating the form of struggle. Um, and in the story, you're talking about the ways that, you know, church people got, the, got involved, um, in, in that struggle as well. And I think that is, something that for people in North America is probably kind of surprising. Um, you know, with some exceptions, uh, Christianity is, uh, I mean, pretty, pretty reactionary, pretty right wing in the United States and in Canada. So I don't know what, what is it about? Um, what is it about uh, Christianity and, and church people in the Philippines that, that would lead them to um, the struggle for liberation rather than something else? Um, I mean, obviously, the, the colonial situ situation is probably a big factor, but is there anything else? I think given that almost 95% of the population in the Philippines identifies themselves as Roman Catholics, it is inevitable to have Christian organizations um, as, part of the, uh, as part of the revolutionary movement. Not only it's, it is functional in terms of popularization of the values and programs of the um, of the of the of the belligerent group, uh, not only not only it's functional and it's bringing people into the fold, but also it is something that inevitably could happen given the religious background of the Philippines. And you know, a lot of a lot about transformative work is cultural work. Uh, generally speaking, a Christian organization provides. Uh, Know, a cultural framework and orientation to the work of a political organization, make sure that the political program adheres to the religious program for social transformation. It also makes sure that the political language is translated into theological language, which is more accessible to the Filipino um, consciousness. So uh, to answer your question, some, something about the religious background, which is of course, tied to the colonial background of the Filipino people uh, that made them uh, more, that made them more, uh, more lured or uh, attracted to, to joining such a group as, as a CNN as a revolutionary. Yeah, thanks. That's really helpful, Ariel. Um, Janelle, I'm curious too, maybe about how this feeds into your own experience as a person in ministry, um, also interested in solidarity, uh, you know, formed in that diasporic community. Uh, what do you think as a person doing this kind of work, um, Christianity and solidarity work, uh, how does Christianity sort of feed into that kind of uh, activism? Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I appreciate everything that, that Ariel has said about, about, I guess, the role of Christians in organizing in general and Christians being part of movements for liberation in general. Um, because as you know, and as your listeners know that Christians have a mandate to care for the poor and uh, the oppressed and throughout all different sectors of the population. Um, so for myself to be able to witness that in this movement work uh, has been really, um, has rooted me and given me a lot of grounding the more I learn about the Philippines um, and the movement there for human rights and liberation, the more easily I can have some basic analysis of uh, the presence and mechanisms of, of U.S. imperialism and the struggles um, of others in other parts of the world. And so uh, I don't feel like I've had to start from scratch because of it, because of uh, being immersed in um, Philippines work. So to to learn about a situation is um, a little bit, I feel like it's 
there are so many similarities between between how how people are impacted uh, by these you know by these oppressive systems. It's allowed me to um, also immerse with the masses. So there are times when I've been able to join and also help to co-lead uh, medical missions, solidarity missions to the Philippines on a regular basis. And uh, by doing that, I've been allowed to build connections and relationships of um, of care that cross borders, that cross oceans. And this relationship building has been crucial in solidarity building here in the U.S. Um, because, you know, U.S. U.S. mainstream church is so individualistic and very uh, speaks very much to the middle class um, that to be able to speak on relationships in a way from firsthand experience, it helps me to uh, challenge folks, you know, church folks. Um, it helps me to also um, support in broadening their consciousness and it helps me to connect with others who are interested in something bigger than an individualistic uh, personal type of faith. To have stories and experiences and relationships with um, with the empowered poor, the empowered masses, you know, it's um, it brings an authority based on relationships and genuine care versus just, you know, um, just going back over conversations or going back over back and forth over ideology. And it's also um, helped me bring the perspective of internationalism to uh, the ministry that I do. Very often am I met with um, lay people who've, you know, gone to churches that are very uh, U.S. centric in uh, the ways that they view struggle and liberation, but to be able to bring like the connections of how all of these, um, all of these struggles are connected has been beneficial, I think, in my being able to pastor um, both folks in my church and in the community. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that that bit with us. Um, I mean, you can start to see the ways that uh, solidarity work really does lend itself to Christianity, or, or maybe it lends itself to rehabilitating some forms of Christianity. Um, it's really easy to see how it's so uh, important, I think. And uh, man, I hope US Christians uh, figure this out <laughs> and hope that we can maybe pull them along a little bit. Um, well, this is, I guess, kind of shifting gears a little bit here. Um, on our podcast, uh, just kind of in line with what we <laughs> are interested in, we end up talking a lot about liberation theology, um, and that's cool, uh, but really located specifically to Latin America, or at least mostly. Um, but theologians in the Philippines have also developed what they call a theology of struggle, which is, I think, uh, shares some important resonances with uh, the themes of liberation theology. So um, I don't know, would you both mind maybe saying something a little bit more about that? Um, how do these two traditions, you know, relate to one another? Um, what's different about them? Sure. So they are uh, liberation theology and the theology of struggle are uh, they are similar in many ways, like the use of Marxist class analysis and historical dialectical materialism, which are um, common features of these two theologies. Early articulators of the theology of uh, struggle, like Louis Echenova. Luciano Carino of the National Council of Churches in the Philippines and Ed de la Torre, uh, former priest, pointed out that the difference is on the focus. Uh, surely, they recognize that the end point of the theology of struggle is liberation, but the focus is on the struggle. Uh, it allows that the emphasis is on the struggle, not the end point. It recognizes that the struggle will be protracted, uh, protracted and long. They said that the term uh, struggle evokes uh, participation and uh, an invitation to a new kind of spirituality. It also uh, encourages conversion from mere Christianity to socially engaged practice of one's life. To some degree, the term makes way for contingencies that could be negotiated and considered. Both uh, theology uh, of struggle and liberation theology, at least in the books that I have read about them, uh, I mean, you, you could, uh, it is noticeable that both theology of struggle and liberation theology rejected any form of the use of violence. So certainly, it is not uh, the theology of struggle and the liberation theology that CNL uses as a framework. There must be something else, and that is what I'm trying to research about, how CNL reconciles violence in, spite, in, the light of, in spite of the Christian faith. There must be some other theological framework by which CNL stands. 
That's really interesting. And I think, uh, I mean, I guess I've never really put it that simply of uh, in my brain of one focusing kind of on the the long-term protracted struggle and one uh, liberation theology maybe sometimes being uh, putting you in a more sort of future state. Um, but then recognizing that these are still similar things, I think is really helpful. Um, Janelle, do these things maybe feed into your ministry as well? I mean, there's a long tradition of liberation theology in the U.S., you know, uh, not only in dialogue with Latin America, but also uh, Black liberation theology, indigenous feminist theologies, etc. Um, is there a way that the, that kind of theological tradition that's happening in the U.S., um, do you find that sort of relating to your experience in solidarity work with the Philippines? Like, I'm really intrigued by, uh, you said, um, some of that solidarity work has helped you have a, a different view of, or, or a deeper view of U.S. imperialism. Um, do you find these kind of theological traditions all mixing up together in your ministry or, or not so much? How does that all come together for you? Yeah, I, um, I see that the theology of struggle has, um, has been helpful, I think, for many Filipinos in the diaspora, especially the ones that are born in diaspora and are trying to search for um, a sense of identity. And um, oftentimes the ones that I meet are ones that are um, exploring both their Christian identity and their identity as Filipino. And it's kind of hard to separate the two. So um, theology of struggle is helpful in the sense that it's um, like along with the struggle, it's about developing the consciousness that there is a need to struggle and that there's a reason for struggle in the first place. And I think that um, sometimes living in the diaspora, we're given messages that we should be grateful that we're here and not in the Philippines. We should be grateful that we're living in the so-called first world. Um, but I think theology of struggle speaks to the fact that there's still dissonance that people experience that Filipino Americans might experience when they're here. There's still a sense of loss. There's still a sense of not finding a sense of rootedness. And if people have some kind of solid sense of who they are as a person of faith to, um, to enrich it by being able to bring how, bring about how the, um, Filipino consciousness and the the work of decolonizing is connected is um I think very empowering for for Filipinos abroad. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear. I mean, you know, the struggle is uh of course the struggle for, you know, human rights and for liberation, but it's also um it takes on a, a larger sense of struggle when it when it um comes to the diaspora community. It's really fascinating. Um Ariel, this is another question for you, I guess. In some of your academic work, you um were able to interview Luis Haladone, who is a uh, former priest who started or who who helped start the CNL, um, and uh, that's really fascinating. I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm, I've read a bit about him, but um, what what's he like in person? How how do they talk about the movement? Uh, what do they think of the current situation? Uh, they were, but for for one, they are they are humans. <laughs> I looking for, uh, looking at them from from where I came from. I was looking from them from. From the Philippines, and they were in other Utrecht Netherlands. Um, I was thinking they were they were super human. But when I encountered them, when I visited Utrecht in the, in what they call Barangay uh, or the office of the uh, of the National Democratic Front in the Philippines, they were uh, they were accommodating. They seen the karaoke, and so they're human. Let me say something first about uh, contradictions between communists and being a Christian. Because <laughs> uh, I am thinking that, because uh, many people think about, think Christianity and communism are, uh, are contradictory. They do not fit each other. I, I actually believe that they may still be contradictions between Christianity and communism. Uh, it's not a perfect fit. It has many loose ends and digressions to each other. But I don't think that the loose ends need, need tying up or they need to be coherent. In real life, we live in different contradictions without us having to feel that they need to be coherent or tied up. Real life is messy just as uh, our ideologies are messy. I think it's productive to live in that place in between these contradictions and embrace it as a way of life. Because on the ground, they live and practice it. I think the CNL is still grappling and navigating these contradictions. 
scholars projects to, to, uh, you know, to tie them up and produce a coherent body of lack of, uh, of knowledge. Um, but on the ground, they are, they are at ease with this, living these two contradictions. Um, Dean shared to me a web page with, uh, about CNL, announcing that the next that next year they will release a statement on a communist project in relation to uh, to Christian beliefs. I am actually excited about the process of their study and its outcome, and I can't wait how they will you know, uh, frame their deceiving conscious deceiving contradictions. My guess is that they will draw a lot from their practice and the material basis of the struggle. Um, and I also think that they will have to frame it as a revolutionary violence, uh, which sounds more legitimate and popular. And also, since we're on the topic of Christian, being a Christian and being a communist, it actually reveals a thing about the dominant view on Christianity and capitalism. It seems that majority of Christians are at home inhabiting this coherence of uh, being living in a capitalist world and being a Christian. And it's productive to think about how Christianity is being domesticated in this capitalist framework and that why it is not viewed as contradictory, but rather one as a whole, uh, as a coherent whole. So yeah, I, I went to, when I went to Utrecht and, uh, uh, and met Kalui and uh, Anjoma, um, it was, I was starstruck, to be honest, because um, they were big people back in the Philippines. I only see them on TV, in the news. And having met them face to face is, uh, is something magical. And uh, yeah, I met them on the anniversary of the Communist Party because I was in Europe at that time. And uh, I have Schengen visa, so I could back to this, uh, the office to interview Kalubi. Kalubi has the clearest memory for his age. I asked that I interview him. My, my laptop's memory actually gave up because we spent almost two whole days talking to each other. I, I, don't, I don't intend to, to do it um, that long, but because, because he, he, needs, he feels the need to, to share to me a lot of information, uh, which I, I actually seized. Uh, we, we spent almost two days, two full days uh, talking to each other. Um, just to give you a background, Kaluwi came from a Hacendero family, the ones that oppressed and exploit farmers back then. He told me a lot of stories that led him to be converted from being a priest to being a comrade in the struggle. And one of those moments was when farmers who were rallying to the money increase in their wages were dispersed by paramilitary groups of their family. He was uh, from Bacola, the sugarcane capital of the country, so there are many farmers. And uh, the experience and exposure to to death of activists led him to believe and to, to go to the countryside, uh, remove, uh, gave up his, uh, his priestly office and joined the, 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 the armed struggle countryside. So um, similarly, Kajoma, uh, just like Kalui is very human, sings in the karaoke. His favorite song is I Did It My <laughs> Way. Or do you know the yeah. song My Way? Uh, yeah. I don't know who's the original singer, but he used to sing it a lot. He would replace My Way with Mao's Way, meaning Mao Chitung's methodology. So, so that, that's something revealing to me how human they are. Uh, that's very funny. And very amazing. Uh, what a good story. Um, yeah, it's, it's really neat to be able to have that window into uh, their life and into some of the, the conversation between Christianity and communism that's happening uh, on the ground in the Philippines that way. Uh, so thanks for that, Ariel. Um, maybe still thinking about that theme and, and also that solidarity movement more broadly, something uh, Janelle said a little while back earlier in the conversation was... Um, uh, that point about how the solidarity movement just lends to a, a different view of, um, you know, international relationships, imperialism, etc. And uh, I was thinking about that as you were talking, Ariel, about um, different views of, of Christianity and communism, too, and, and maybe what people's impressions of that relationship might be in a place like the United States. 
So uh, maybe you could both talk a little bit more about that. Like, how does learning about the the struggle in the Philippines and the history and people like uh, Luis Alandone and and others, how does uh, learning about that, participating in that struggle, also help you have a sort of different view of the United States and its society and its relationship to the rest of the world? Maybe Canada too, Ariel, since you're studying here and, and thinking about that. Um, how does that struggle sort of help us understand you know, uh, from the other side, look, looking from the Philippines outward, what's going on in, in this part of the world. I guess uh, this solidarity work has given me a, a different perspective on where power is um, and not necessarily um, having, uh, putting all, all my hope in a parliamentary struggle, but being able to put hope in uh, the folks who are organizing at the grassroots level uh, folks who are, you know, working with community and trying to build something different, um, while at the same time trying to um, oppose these these uh, systems of oppression, um, to be able to see to see um, how people in the diaspora, you know, um, how our life in the diaspora is influenced and impacted by the history and the current situation of the Philippines. I think has been very very crucial in um, just seeing how connected we are as a world and also like to to see how oppressive systems are you know they're they're doing the work of transcending borders they're doing the work of you know doing best practice trainings through things like urban shield through sharing policing tactics all over the world and uh, for us to do to match that I guess <laughs> Uh, with our liberation work to be able to transcend our ideas of borders and um, to be able to make connections in those ways, I think would um, allow us to to um, engage um, in the struggle for liberation differently. I feel like um, you know we're we're doing things to address our basic needs um, and raising consciousness about, who we are as Filipinos, you know, worldwide. And um, I guess reminding folks that, that, that we are Filipino and that there's something powerful about that and that there's something empowering about that. Um, our colonialism, the colonial, the colonial psyche in the Filipino, Filipina, Filipinex community is very strong. And um, to, to not, uh, to be able to to use that as a way of um, like see to recognize that we are also oppressed and exploited, and that Christians are also oppressed and exploited by these systems, then we get to fight for our collective liberation in a way that's very different, in a way that's empowering, and not in a way that's about um, charity, but in a way where it's like we we all have a stake in this struggle, we all have a stake in this fight, and so. Um, yeah, I guess that, that's that's how I've been able to see the connections a little bit more, a little bit more broadly. That um, we as people, we as humans, we're created to um, connect in ways that transcend all of those things. Anyway, you know, we're built to be able to have our hearts break for one another. We're built to be able to be in sorrow and enjoy with one another, and that shouldn't be bound by any. Um, identities by any borders or anything like that and so in that spirit i feel like it's it's us being human to um and followers of christ to be able to rise up for one another yeah janelle i think that's a really good word um i appreciate what you're saying there um something that you said i think really resonates with me i mean in in my experience with christianity in the united states um when it comes to helping somebody else or you know even in in the most basic ways it is always viewed through that that lens of charity. And I think that's too bad because I think what you're offering in the ministry that you're doing and like what you're saying here is that there's something deeper to Christianity than charity, that that practicing solidarity um, is, uh, you know, does some of that work. I, I don't know, like what, what would you say to, um, you know, U.S. Christians who don't really even understand what solidarity is? Like how would you maybe get them into the to that mind frame? Um, of of uh, thinking about the relationships between people and you know especially people you know across borders like how would you um, I don't know provoke provoke U.S. Christians to think more deeply about solidarity? My my okay, Jenna, Jenna, would you like to answer? 
Oh, go ahead. No, um, I'm thinking charity is built in the system. I mean, charity uh, is built in the system of oppression itself. Uh, like uh, you oppress the people and there's a way and they're in, in the same system and the same uh, structure of things that the act that uh, charity is made available to. Um, and uh, one of the ways to challenge it is to uh, to propose the idea of justice and uh, structural justice of that when we, we, we remove the oppression. There's the same people who same type of, or the same people who are oppressing, for example, the Philippines, are also the same people who made charity possible. So one of the one of the ways to challenge that is to you know to to, to put justice discourse into the structure and to imagine uh, to imagine the structure or to reimagine the structure uh, in a way that it dispenses justice rather than charity. Yeah, I I think that. Um... In the U.S., it does have to do with how some people also um, self-identify. I remember listening to um, High Thurman, um, who worked alongside Fred Hampton, and he said that one of the struggles that he had was um, getting poor white folk to recognize that they were poor, you know, um, and in being able to for folks to recognize that they're not the ones with, you know, private jets and stuff like that that they're able to identify then with those who they're closest to in terms of like material um, material need and, you know, access to resources and stuff like that. And so I think that Christians in the U.S., um, we've, we've attached so strongly to the charity aspect that there's also a lot of shame that um, in, in receiving charity as well. Um, I, I have heard of church people where they had set up charity, you know, they'd set up maybe like clothing donations for folks, but then when a member, um, you know, is in need, that sometimes that shame of being the person in need um, overrides being able to receive that uh, resource. So it's interesting um, how that happens. I was also in a conversation with some API um, trans community. They're trying, we were trying to assess um, our needs and we found and some of the some of the surveys that they had conducted found that many uh, Asian American trans folks um, I also identify as trans as well but um, they often feel like they're too privileged to access resources that are available to them um, so so I feel like there's there's a sense of not identifying with people who with those who need and people in need and I think that that impacts how deeply we might engage with in struggles and also it might impact how we even are able to resource ourselves and one another yeah that is really helpful and makes a lot of sense um and uh I I feel like Christianity probably has a unique role in um creating those kinds of bad habits and also maybe also a unique role in trying to undo them or or think a little more broadly about how to uh, create a different paradigm for that. So yeah, all, all of what you're both saying gives me a lot to think about there. Um, as we're sort of moving toward the the back half of this episode, um, we've been covering a lot of ground. Uh, I wonder if we could talk a little bit more toward the end about um, solidarity movements in that are kind of sprouting up or, or seems like uh, gaining more steam in the U.S. and Canada with the people of the Philippines and how Christians or others uh, in these countries might be able to participate. So, you know, there there are a lot of uh, international solidarity movements. Um, you're both involved in them. Uh, how can Christians outside the Philippines express their solidarity with the people there? What can we do in these countries in order to, uh, you know, make a, a material impact on that kind of situation? Here, uh, here in Canada, we, uh, we receive, like, the NCCP, or the National Council of Churches in the Philippines, which is more of uh, a more in tune with the suffering of the Filipino people uh, is in partnership with uh, here in Canada with uh, United Church of Canada and the Anglican Church of Canada. Uh, and those partnerships were uh, started long ago. And, uh, and people here in Canada uh, are able to participate through, through those partnerships. Um, 
yeah, so that's how Solidarity Work uh, functions and operates here uh, in Canada to, uh, to the Philippines or in solidarity with the Philippine people. So that's, that's church is one way, uh, one of the ways in which uh, people here can participate in, uh, in solidarity work. Another way is um, like here in Toronto, we have Migrante Toronto, we have International Committee for Human Rights in the Philippines, and we have uh, Bayan, Bayan Canada, um, which are um, activist organizations that, um, that, uh, that is connected with, with, with Filipino activism in the Philippines. So, yeah, uh, in, in church, for church people, there are values of participation. For, for those who are not uh, inclined to, to go to church, uh, there are people's organization movements that they can participate in and learn something from. Um, I I know that I know for sure that these organizations are are like Migrante Ontario and uh, Bayan Bayan Canada and uh, Anak Bayan Toronto and uh, uh, international ICHRP uh, Toronto are conducting education uh, sessions to uh, uh, to to bring people in and to to make people aware of the situation in the Philippines uh, and. Uh, that is letting us know that we that that here in Canada we are living, or in Canada and the U.S. we are living in the valley of the empire. And that a lot of a lot of mechanisms. There are a lot of mechanisms, legal ones, that can be used in order to 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 do something and to express solidarity with Filipino people. For example, writing to politicians. I think I think uh, many activists are doing that uh, here in Canada. So those are. Just a few of the ways uh, different people could join in the struggle and in solidarity with um, Janelle, any any advice for uh, people in the United States? Um, the organizations that Ariel had lifted up, there are U.S. chapters. And um, I also want to lift up the National Alliance for Filipino Concerns. Um, they have something called the Filipino-American Agenda right now that um, speaks broadly to different... Um, things that impact the Filipino, Filipino American communities like workers, uh, women, um, LGBTQ plus. And um, there's also an item on there around foreign policy. And so I would encourage uh, folks to make connections, build relationships with organizations that um, are addressing the needs of Filipinos in America and also making the connections to um, Filipino workers, migrants and Filipinos abroad. Um, I also do want to lift up that, that, um, I, I feel like there's always an invitation when we have, when we have our events and when we have our gatherings to allies, uh, for folks to join us in solidarity. And, um, I think that there, the question of what, you know, what can we do or what can be done comes up pretty often. And I think that simply, um, when, when, our communities ask folks to come and be present. I think it's simply that, to come and be present, to build relationships, to um, get to know folks um, on a personal level as well as a political level, you know. Um, I, I, I think that part of what folks can do as well, many of these organizations also have uh, solidarity trips or immersion trips. And... Um, once in a while, our task force, who also partners with NCCP, um, once in a while we ask NCCP whether it's better for us to just fundraise because it's a lot of resources that go into getting folks to go on these trips, whether we should just send the funds that we would use to go on the trips. Um, but they always say that we should go there to build relationships, to witness for ourselves the situation that's, that is happening in the Philippines and the realities there. So I think relationship building is very crucial. Um, and that's really why we want folks to join organizations, right, is to build those kind of relationships. Yeah, that's great. Um, that sounds like a really neat thing. Uh, we'll do our best to list some of these organizations that you all are mentioning in the, uh, the notes of our show. Um, but maybe to, to close the conversation out, um, just a, a very broad question. Uh, we end up usually asking this to most people, but I think it'll be especially interesting to hear from you both. Um, 
you know, what what do you want Christians in the U.S. and Canada to know about the the, the, the struggle for liberation in the Philippines more broadly? Um, I, you know, I, at the very top of the episode, I mentioned that people in the U.S., I think uh, the Philippines is, is a, a blind spot for sure. So I don't know. What would you want them to know? Um, yeah. Also, what would you want the, you know, like the U.S. left to know about uh, the struggle in the Philippines? Uh, yeah. What would you like try to urge us to learn um, uh, about these uh, these movements and the way they intersect? Oh, yeah, thank you for that. That's a that's an important question. Uh, I would like to share that to the to the to the activists here that that they would understand the sense of urgency that our activism brought us. I mean, the sense of urgency to change and be changed. It's more intense in the Philippines. Uh, I mean, it's intense in the Philippines in such a way that exploitation is more felt and uh, and that requires an immediate urgent response of action and, and second that leftist activism in the philippines is not a career path but more of a calling and the ultimate expression of that calling is to join in the armed revolution which requires that you give up every other desires and have it under the desire of the uh, or the project of the of the of the party or project of the of the movement. Yeah, thanks, Ariel. That is really helpful. Um, and uh, Janelle, anything that you you wish more Christians in the U.S. or Canada knew about uh, the Philippines or um, or the left? How they might uh, what you wish they might know about that struggle? What it might tell us? Yeah, um, I think that it's important to remember that it's that 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 it's um. There, it's intentional that that we don't know what's going on in the Philippines. You know, I think that we need to remember that it's not because things are not happening there. It's because um, that information is being kept from us. Um, the people that are raising, who are trying to expose these things, those folks are being intentionally silenced. And I think that's important to remember that this. Um, increasing uh, the lack of information and also the increasing um, fascist policies like the anti-terror law um, show how powerful the movement for liberation really is in the Philippines, that there's so much effort to silence it and there's so much effort to make the to make folks not know that um, that folks are are rising up in liberation. Uh, I also want to note that uh, folks that I have met there in the Philippines, activists I've met there in the Philippines have said that um, you know, loosening the foothold of U.S. empire in the Philippines contributes to loosening the foothold of U.S. empire everywhere. And so I think more so our solidarity work um, is crucial. If we're able to loosen that foothold of empire in any place, that it helps all of us collectively. And um, I hope that we can all recognize and remember always our unity and our collective struggle. Thanks. That's a great uh, note to end on. I think uh, a good pastoral call uh, as well. Um, so it's great to to be able to have that um, that sort of spirit represented in this conversation. So thanks to both of you, uh, Ariel, especially for sharing your your uh, your knowledge of the CNL. We'd love to hear more about that um, in the future, maybe next year when they celebrate their their fiftieth anniversary. And uh, Janelle, so wonderful to, to hear more about your work and uh, your experience and life in the struggle. We'd love to hear more about that as well uh, down the line. So um, great to have you both on The Magnificast. Uh, we look forward to talking to you again sometime. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, like we said at the top of the show, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Magnificast. Uh, you can also check our show notes. We are going to list some of the organizations that you heard about in the last hour or so. Uh, you can also talk to us on Twitter at The Magnificast. You can email us at TheMagnificast at gmail.com. Um, there's probably more you can do, but I can't think of it right now. Our music is by Amaria Armstrong in the beginning and by the Illogical Spoon here at the end. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church, we'll meet down by the riverside. 
There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up Well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.